afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from our state-of-the-art facility here in my garage in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the thousand listening. Actually, we're probably over a thousand by now. A thousand listening live right now, and or the tens of thousands who will be listening to this recording on iTunes. Now, we've had some amazing guests on Office Hours since we launched the program last year. People like Seth Godin, Jim Collins, Susan Cain, Jonah Lehrer, Marcus Buckingham. But every guest shares something in common. Each one of them, and me too, stands on the shoulders of today's guest. 30 years ago, most writing about business and management and leadership and innovation was cabined in the ivory tower, with the exception of people like Peter Drucker, and that's about it. Most people writing about these topics wrote specialized articles for specialized journals and lengthy room-emptying tomes that nobody actually read. But in 1982, Tom Peters and Bob Waterman changed all that with their book, in search of excellence. They combined hard-headed research with real stories of real companies and created not just a bestseller and a titanic bestseller at that, but also an entire genre. Almost single-handedly, they birthed the modern business book. The reason I, and I mean when I say I, I mean I, Daniel Pink, the reason I, Dan Pink, I'm able to do what I do is because of Peters and Waterman, plain and simple. Now, Tom, of course, didn't stop there. He went on to write about a dozen more books and to travel the world, gathering, distilling, and presenting ideas on how companies can run more effectively and how all of us can do better, bolder, more significant work. So it's a pleasure today to introduce my friend, the man the LA Times called the father of the postmodern corporation and the man Inc. Magazine called the Red Bull of management, Tom Peters. Tom, welcome to Office Hours. Hey, thanks, Dan. Maybe we can devote this uh, this hour to figuring out what a postmodern corporation is. We, uh, we, th- we thought it sounded incredibly cool, so we stuck it in the bio, but I have no more idea in the man in the moon what it means. Well, here's what I think it means. A postmodern corporation means anything we want it to mean. I think you're right. So, you know what I think you know, it means? Because I was having a discussion on – a little bit of a discussion on Twitter. Going back to 19 19- – do you read Charles Handy, the, the Brit guru? Of course. Yeah. yeah, well, he he. Remember, he invented in about 1990 that thing called the Shamrock Organization. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, and it was kind of the first one that said very directly what you subsequently said, I subsequently said that you know pretty much the world would have or the the big corporations would have three people on their staff and everything would be subcontracted. Right. But but that was at least to me that was totally new when it arrived. It is new, and, and it's gone from new to postmodern. So um, uh, probably right. Let me explain to you and our audience how office hours works. So on each program, uh, we open up the phone lines for an hour, and our guest and I will take your questions from all the folks who are still coming in here. Wow, amazing. Uh, and our guests will take your questions, questions about work, business, life, careers, education, anything you want. If you have questions, we have answers. And when we don't, we'll make the answers up. Uh, as we like to say, this program is car talk for the human engine. Now, those of you <laughs> listening out there live, if you want to ask a question on your phone right now, just press star 2. If you want to ask a question, press star 2. That will essentially allow you to raise your hand to say, I want to ask a question. Now, what I will do is I will say your name. I'll say, like we're, like we're really doing talk radio. Oh, my God, people are already raising their hands. Uh, Fred in St. Louis, you're on the air, and you can ask away. Um, now, remember, if you're listening to this on iTunes, please do not press start to on your phone. Nothing will happen. Uh, now, we've also found that people like to ask us questions via Twitter. And so if you'd like to do that, just include my Twitter handle, which is at Daniel Pink. Uh, now let's talk with Tom. Tom, where are you right now? I am in West Tinmouth, Vermont, which is home when I'm uh, home. Vermont, and you've been a Vermonter for a while now, haven't you? I I guess so, Dan. I I normally say when you know when I'm talking to people professionally, which happens to be the truth, that m- most of my adult life, as in almost 35 years, was spent in Silicon Valley, 
and you know from before silicon before the postmodern silicon valley and therefore i i really think other than my academic background uh i am an intellectual child and probably an emotional child of you know what was what was going on around me there from 1965 to 2000 or 1970 to 2005 but yes i i uh, got got a farm in vermont in 1985 and have you know ki- kind of been living full time here for the last dozen or 15 years but i i despite having been born in maryland near Nap- near annapolis i, I uh, consider myself a a, a californian because I, you know, I'm like a million other, uh, not a million, many million other people who, you know, went went to California to uh, to find their find their dream. Uh, well, that's a great question. I think a lot of people don't don't know a, a lot of your background. You've done. I mean, people know you from your work and your writing and your and your um, and your speaking and your consulting and all the great things that you've done, being on TV and et cetera, et cetera. But I think you actually had a kind of a curious path there. Take, tell us what happened between – spend a little time on this. Tell us what happened between um, uh, your, your days in Maryland and how you made your way eventually to California. There's some interesting stops along the way, including one at the White House. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I was – I went – well, first of all, I, li- I live seven miles from Annapolis. And uh, life, to a certain extent, well, was dominated by the Naval Academy. I went to a a little prep school near Annapolis that had originally been founded. Uh, Congressmen make appointments to West Point, Annapolis, and so on. And because they're congressional appointments, a lot of the people who get them are not the brightest bulbs in the universe. (laughs) And so they go to a finishing school for a year uh, so that they can, you know, Try to put verbs in their sentences or something like that, uh-huh, and then uh-huh. off they go to, uh, to to West Point or Annapolis. Anyway, my little school started that way in about 1910, uh, and when you know now now that I live near Boston, uh, when you know people people go on their Harvard jag, my response is, well, my school had more Congressional Medal of Honor winners because you know we. You know, we literally peopled a fair amount of the the top people in the fleet, for example, in World War II. But it was it had stopped it pretty much stopped being a Navy school by the time I matriculated in high school in 1960. Uh, but so I went through there and and uh, matriculated at Cornell as an architect. Uh, found that I had no artistic ability whatsoever, and fortunately, my headmaster had forced me to go to a school an architecture school that had an engineering school that was very good. So I became a civil engineer, and my parents didn't have two cents to rub together. So uh, I chose to, uh, as, 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 as I said in an alumni speech I gave in Cornell, I became a socialist, which is to say that my tuition was paid by the United States government, as in the Navy, uh-huh. uh, for four, all four years at Cornell. And then I owed the Navy four years, and I was hoping to go down a civil engineer, something called the Civil Engineer Corps. Da, 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 da. I was hoping to go down to the Antarctic, uh, but instead, <laughs> in warmer climates, uh, LBJ made yes, up. Give us, tell us industry. the tell us the years because the years in which this is transpiring are very significant. We, very yeah, significant. well, I, I uh, you know graduated from Cornell in '65. And 65 was actually, in terms of large numbers, pretty early in the Vietnam thing. You know, I, I, uh, the, 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 the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq probably had, well, equal consequences. But boy, oh boy, the Tonkin Gulf in, uh, incident, talk, talk about something 98% made up. So yep. <laughs> it's a rather, lot, rather long history. O- I think only Pearl Harbor was, uh, you know, was was the real deal. So at any rate, uh, civil engineer, civil engineer corps. There is a uh, part of the civil engineer corps called construction battalions, which begins with a C and begins with a B, and uh, therefore we are called CBs, and we're construction engineers who support the Marine Corps and build right. bridges and all those kinds of things. So I. Had two tours in Vietnam, and that was 60, within 66, 67, 68. 
when I got out of Vietnam, and and this this to me is fascinating at a, at a level relative to all the people who are who are listening in. I had no idea what I wanted to do, but business school was just becoming cool then, uh-huh. and a large number of my friends who were getting out of the military who had no idea what they were going to do said, geez, we, there's there's this thing called business schools. And, uh, yeah, I know they go back a long time. You know, the Stanford one was, you know, goes back to Herbert Hoover's days or something like that. Uh, but they were just becoming hot. You know, one of the other amusing things when I matriculated at uh, Stanford in 1970 was, which, of course, the Vietnam War still had uh, quite a way to go. We had 80 we had, you t- talk about a fascinating world. 310 people in my matriculating class, 80% were veterans, and wow. out of 310, we had four women. Yeah. Uh, among my 800 engineering co-matriculants, if there's such a word, at Cornell in 1960, we had five women. Unbelievable. Uh, so is, then, and it's the, not that you know, long ago. Navy's, That's what's so shocking, yeah. Yeah, it really yeah, it really is. It was I I think we were about the last year, uh, meaning seventy two, the the last year when the women's numbers were really that low. And then they, you know, pretty quickly shot up to thirty percent and for whatever reason I think they've uh they've actually plateaued in most places. So 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 you're at Stanford Business School and if you're a straight man it's very hard to find a date among your classmates. So, so there's, some tr- there's some truth about that. <laughs> and so what? And, uh, and, it, what, and it was before Mr. Obama's announcement last week. So you know there wasn't much future in the alternative. There you go. So so you, so instead of instead of dating at Stanford Business School, you did what? Uh, you. No, I mean I don't mean one. I mean you. Discovered that everybody else in the Stanford Business School had graduated first or second in their class, too, also, and you discovered the meaning of the word ordinary, namely the person you saw in the mirror. Uh, But, I mean, one one little tiny thing, which which I think, again, you know, relative to the historical stuff you're talking about, uh, so there I and my 310 buddies in my class are in Palo Alto. Yeah. only one, to the best of my knowledge, of our 310 initially tried to get a job in a tech company in Silicon Valley, and he had no luck at all. But he wow. was totally determined, and he you know, continued to eat lentils for six months <laughs> until he finally wangled a job. But, you know, the... You know, the people who came then were the same people who were coming to Harvard, you know, the big investment banks and the McKinsey's and, and yeah. so on. But it was it was just, uh, yeah, well, and part of, the, part of the deal, for better or for worse, and you could have this argument forever and ever, the, the people in Silicon Valley weren't hiring MBAs. The subsequent president of, uh, of, of Hewlett-Packard, John Young, who was the first guy Bob Waterman and I ever interviewed for – what became In Search of Excellence, was a Stanford MBA. And when John became president, which was, you know, probably 73 or 4 or 5, he started hiring MBAs for the first time. Mm. But it was, it was not, very, not very intensive, and you certainly didn't have Sand Hill Road and a jillion, uh, you know, venture, venture capitalists. You had a handful, but it was a very, very different, different place. But you went on to get a PhD there. Yeah, I, I, organizational uh, I, psychology. Well, it was, it, it was, it was what? No, it was not. I mean, the answer is yes, a ton of psychology, but it was uh, called organizational effectiveness or organizational mm-hmm. behavior, and it's just how how organizations work. And obviously, in order to do do that, uh, uh, you know, you've got to have a heck of a lot of, of individual psych. And so the answer is yes, that that is what I did. And you know, then that leads to the White House thing. Uh, okay, so tell us, about, tell us about because, the White House. Sorry, tell us about the White House thing because it wasn't well, just any White House. It was, the it White was House kind of, kind of inhabited by. I, I was I was finished with the uh with a coursework for the PhD and uh needed to begin my dissertation and had one little problem which was called no money and 
we had just started, which, oh, God, we're going with this forever, Dan. We had just started at Stanford something called the PMP, which was the Public Management Program. And, you know, it all was intriguing. The Public Management Program was started by a new dean by the name of R.J. Miller, who happened to have been the Ford president when the city started burning in the United States and when he became a business school dean. He said, this is a bunch of baloney. We should be you know, training managers for the public sector as well. So we had this little thing called the public management program, and I had been pretty central to it, and I was out of money. Uh, and this was the beginning of Nixon term two. And forgetting what happened in Nixon term two, one of the things he did is there is something that everybody knows now called the Office of Management and Budget. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. prior to 74 or 73, it had been BOB, the Bureau of the Budget. And so this famous CEO by the name of Roy Ash, who ran a conglomerate called Lytton Industries, came to work to add the M into OMB. And mm. so I went, I went back looking for a job in OMB, and uh, ran into one of my interviewers was a guy who was cheating because what he was really looking for was somebody for his little tiny White House staff uh, who were dealing with uh, uh, drug issues. Again, everything in context, there had been a genuine, honest-to-gosh, measurable heroin epidemic in Mm -hmm. New York and so the 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 drug thing was was you know was at a level that it you know liter, literally made it into into the white house arena at, at any rate i i got hired for this uh uh little five person office and which and i became something called the executive director of the cabinet committee on international narcotics control which is a lot sexier than than the reality, and so I spent a couple of years back there. One one hilarious part of it is I literally left a week before Nixon did, which was August the 8th, 1974. Uh-huh. But during the couple of run-up months, and you, you've been in the White House, and you were a lot closer to the action, God alone knows, than I was. But in the run-up, you know, when, when all of the rats, as they should have, left the ship, there were job openings all over the sure. place, and 31-year-old Tom Peters was nominated. I mean, they always say nominated by the president to be the deputy director of the Drug Enforcement Administration. And then God intervened, and I left town You know, at the same time Nixon did, because they would have eaten me alive, Dan. Oh, sure. You know, you, 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 you've had your, I don't never, you've had your experience. Sorry? They eat everybody alive. I mean, that's the well, whole. I know. That, that's what the system does. Um, yeah, especially, no, it's, it's, especially uh, in that you kind know, there's, 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 in that kind of know, environment. So at any rate, so anyway, that was that, and I went back and got it. Well, this M. I mean, the you know the my as you well know, one of my great belief in beliefs in life is uh, serendipity is that all important last one hundred percent. And when they staffed up the M for management in OMB, no great surprise, a bunch of McKinsey people became deputy directors to Roy Uh Ash. And so I had two things that were going on in my life. Number one, after the Stanford thing, I still didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. And number two, I had a girlfriend in San Francisco so I had to get back to San Francisco come hell or high water. And number three, one of the deputy directors of OMB happened to be a uh, a guy who had jumped from McKinsey in the West Coast. And so, you know, I interviewed and somehow, you know, they they uh, misidentified my name and I got a job at McKinsey. So you ended up working at McKinsey. You ended up working with uh, with Bob Waterman, and right. then that led that led to In Search of Excellence. I want to read something that you wrote once, and, and that's going to take us into In Search of Excellence. And, I, and we actually have a couple of questions on Twitter about this as well. But uh, you say, and I'm quoting Tom here, folks: the ideas that led to In Search of Excellence were welcomed by my employer, McKinsey and Company, like a cold sore in February. 
What's going on? Why didn't they like Well, that? what's going on is I didn't want to use the really strong language in that sentence, would have, which would have – well, what's going on? To make a, a, a very long story short, uh, and this, a lot of this is true today, but everything at McKinsey was uh, the development of very sexy strategies. And the assumption, and obviously I'm oversimplifying, but frankly not by much, if you developed a great strategy, then anybody, then any bunch of idiots, since it was a great strategy developed by McKinsey or BCG or others, but mainly McKinsey, any, any, any group of a few thousand idiots could implement it. And, you know, my training, my professional training, and this training associated with a Ph.D., fundamentally said just the opposite is and and you know this is something you and I believe in you know profoundly I think almost religiously that you know if you, if you don't get the people stuff very very right it's totally irrelevant what the strategy is but McKinsey didn't want to hear that uh and I came within a you know within a within an eyelash of of being fired an incredible number amount of times until I actually was fired but uh so it, it it really it what it wasn't what they wanted it wasn't what they wanted to hear. Uh, and and was it that this this idea that you are among the first voice that I think has become you know, uh, fairly well accepted, which is this notion that hard is soft and soft is hard. This this well, now I, to be I a kind we, of perverse distinction between the hard stuff, numbers, quantitative operations, which is important, and the soft well, stuff. Well, we, we use, we use those words, Dan, but you, you overly kindly said that uh, you and others stood on my shoulders. I mean, the answer is sure, uh, but I stood, and I kind of did most of the intellectual work, I stood on the shoulders of many giants who had been dealing with this, and we actually – and, and I'm still not sure any human beings read it, but Bob and I insisted on putting a couple of theory chapters at the beginning of In Search of Excellence, and we went through the, uh, you know, the intellectual roots. There was a mm -hmm. uh, MIT guy by the name of Douglas McGregor, and I think an awful lot of people in the audience, our audience, know this, and an awful lot don't. But he he wrote a book and talked about. Theory X and Theory Y, and it's basically what you and I have been doing with our career. Yep. He said yep. Theory X said you give orders and people follow them. Theory Y said if people are engaged, the odds of doing a terrific job go a lot higher. And then since Japan was our issue in you know the mid-70s, at least as much as China is today, uh, then Bill Ochi, who was a Stanford colleague, did theory Z, which mm -hmm. was kind of the Japanese way of doing things. But, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you know, trust me, we had a lot of incredible shoulders to stand on. Uh, it just happened that through timing and various other things, you know, we were we were we were we were able to get noticed in a way that you know, in which in which uh, was got an awful lot of public acclaim. But you know, as as you know, as a as as an incredibly in depth researcher yourself, once once you start looking, uh, you discover to your amazement that you actually weren't the first guy, or even among the first hundred thousand who had an idea. Right. We had a, uh, related to that. We have a question. We have a couple of questions on Twitter related to what we've been talking about. Uh, Mark Hacker uh, wants to know. Uh, which of the eight basic principles in In Search of Excellence is most important today besides bias for action? Well, bias for action is one of the eight. Yeah. So, he just, so, so what are the, of the remaining seven, which is, which is the most important? Well, <laughs> our, our, our good friend is going to get a repeat whether he wants it or not. A bias for action is the most right. important. Okay. Uh, and I stand on it's well. It's not only the most important; it's it's arguably more important by an order of magnitude today than it was in '77 uh, when we started the research. But you know, my my answer. I, I wish I had some sexy counterintuitive answer, but my answer is what was either number three or number four on the list, and the list really wasn't meant to be in order of importance. Is mm -hmm. what we what we uh, unsexually called productivity through people. 
and you know that was the people dimension and you know the the truth is that that I certainly would put that co first at the very least with with the action thing because again the essence of particularly what you've done with the last 10 years of of your life if if people aren't genuinely excited from the inside out then you know you can proclaim great strategy or you can sure. com- proclaim get out there and act and uh not a damn thing's going to happen. Yeah, we got another question. We have a to to our delight. We we I have a lot of uh, or at least a handful of of classrooms that are listening in that always listen in that frequently listen in live. And there's a Texas uh, high school classroom that wants to know what are some points gleaned from your military service that high school students should understand. Uh, well, I, I will I will uh, I I will say in short. Uh, and I don't think it's because of bloodlust, because we were engineers. But the uh, the four years I spent in the Navy were uh, probably, if you had to isolate something, the the most important in my life. And uh, the I had in my most recent book, I wrote about having two commanding officers for each of my one each of my two deployments in Vietnam, who I called Captain Day and Captain Night. And the first one, Dick Anderson, uh, he he defined the term a bias for action. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, mm-hmm. this little group that I was a part of, uh, the called the CBs, uh, their motto is can, "Can do." And to translate that into practical action, and is that they first appeared on the scene in Guadalcanal in 1942 and they did things like build full-scale usable air strips out in out of the middle of the jungle in a week and a half and and these were guys who didn't know how to salute uh the the people who recruited cbs went out into the union halls and said we need we need some guys and we'll give you two weeks of training and you know, teach you which end of the gun the bullet comes out of, and then get the hell over to the Pacific or the or the uh, Atlantic, as the case may be, and start building stuff. And so mm. that was the ethos. And and this first guy, Dick Anderson, you know, his uh, his entire deal was, uh, you know, just sh- shut up and get out there and start building. And he was. He was a master of giving us young officers, age 23 and 24, uh, very, very, very long leashes. Uh, we had an awful lot of independence, albeit, you know, I'm writing a lot of stuff right now, Dan, about the incredibly important role, and Marcus Buckingham is actually kind of the research key here about first line supervisors. Sure. And there's a, a little thing I've been going through recently that you know where I where I say is my opening gambit, if all the lieutenants and captains and majors in a uh, in a regiment got killed, it would be very sad. But if the sergeants got killed, the game would be over. And mm. you know they they are or in the Navy's case, chief petty officers are the and and our guy Anderson basically got all the junior officers together our first day in Vietnam, and he said, "I'm going to tell you how you're going to have a successful deployment. You'll do whatever the hell your chiefs tell you to do, even though they are required by law to salute you." And so you know the the productivity through people thing was implicitly drilled in there. The bias for action thing and. Uh, it was it was an utterly amazing experience, and then then relative to what I ended up doing, which was big commercial organizations, is uh, uh, I screwed up so badly in Vietnam that they sent me as punishment to the Pentagon for my last two years. And so you <laughs> know, in the Pentagon, I saw what giant bureaucracies yes. can do as well as can't do. So. It was uh, small 20-person deployment units in Vietnam to, you know, 22,000 at the time of my best friends working in the uh, the big five-sided building that you can probably see from your garage. Yeah. Uh, we're talking to Tom Peters here on Office Hours. If you have a question for Tom, just press star 2 on your phone. That's if we're if you're listening in live right now. I think we'll go Dan, to can I now. Can I add one yeah. thing that's totally yeah. unrelated to that? Of course. Well, uh 
I I uh, I I was I was lucky enough from a gene pool. Well, I guess it isn't genes in this case. I guess it's the the nurture part. My uh, my mother was a Virginian, born and raised, and she taught me often with the back of her hand that uh, good good there's good manners and there's godliness, and both of them are important. But God comes in a distant second. And I really believe, relative to high school students, and 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 you know you you know this a thousand times better than I, but she taught me to say yes, ma'am, yes, sir, and thank you. And I've been writing a lot lately, you know, about about the topic of civility, and this sure. is particularly true for crazy change agents. If you behave, other than the fact that it's a wonderful thing to do. Uh, if you behave in a civil fashion, particularly if you're a radical, uh, it's not quite game over, but it's frighteningly close. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I just believe for high school students or for college students or for 69-year-olds like me and for you that if you, you know, if you want, if you, if you want to, if you want to, you know, I, I was told it by one of the senior McKinsey guys when I started this this crazy project, and and he said you're going to do things which are going to make a lot of people angry. So make sure that you show up for meetings early, yeah. that you wear the blackest suit and the whitest shirt, and that you be more polite than the next person. Don't let them fire you on the basis of the trivial. And there's a wonderful book, by the way, which has become one of my favorites. Uh, called choosing civility. I don't know if you read it or not. No, I haven't. It's a it's a hop it's a Hopkins guy who started the Hopkins Civility Project. Oh, sure, yeah, I remember this guy. Yeah, but the little vignette on it is he said he was he said I was and he, he his last name is F O R N I. It turns out that he's a professor of uh, uh, of Italian literature, and he said I was was looking at my students as I was teaching them Dante one day. And I thought to myself, if I did a perfect job of teaching them their Dante, and one of them went out and got on a bus in the Hopkins part of Baltimore and didn't give some woman or man with a cane their their seat, I would think that I had totally failed as a professor mm-hmm. and a human being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And literally mm-hmm. coming out of that little clipping became this this uh you know this project, the civility project and also this just amazing amazing book. Great advice for that high school class and also they all, they also wanted to know what's one book that all high school students should read. So maybe it's choosing civility. We well, yeah, got so. or another or another one that you and I both have a fondness for and frankly I didn't study it hard enough until recently and that's Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Interesting. Yeah. That that, that is that is my nomination for uh best management book ever. Interesting. Let's let's come back to that. I want to get I want to get other people in on this conversation. So we're going to go to the phones. We're on with office hours with Tom Peters. Press start two if you have a question. Uh, let's go to uh, let's go to Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, Hartford, Connecticut. You're on the air. Hi, Daniel. It's Tracy. How are you? Hi, Tracy. Uh, question for Tom. Um, so many companies are talking about creating an inclusive culture where diverse perspectives can you know create a true competitive advantage. So what advice would you give leaders and the people who are trying to coach them uh, to get better at listening to people who who don't think like they do? Oh, good question, Tracy. How Tracy, do you listen to people who 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 might not agree with you? Yeah, I mean that I I would I would give my left arm Tracy to be able to give you a 140 character answer to uh <laughs> to that question. Uh you know, I, I have an odd definition of the word new. People keep telling me, quit writing about this women's stuff, you said it enough, or quit writing about this listening stuff. And my compliment, comment is, it remains new until it's implemented. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Dan and I were having a little conversation about this in a way. Uh, one of my other favorite management books very, very favorites is called Management Lessons from Mayo Clinic. Uh, and as as you know, and I think Dan and I are of a single mind on this, that, that both he and I love little stories. 
Uh, and one little story. First of all, Dr. William Mayo said that the way you win the game in medicine is not graduating first in your class at Harvard, but in fact practicing team medicine. And that plays an awful lot more of a role in the in the amazing success of Mayo than uh, than than the IQs of the surgeons. But here's a here's a teeny thing which is indicative, and it goes back to hiring. When Dr. Pink, the great neurosurgeon, is interviewing at the Mayo Clinic, and he has a you know a, a CV to die for, during the half an hour that we talk with. Dan, literally, somebody else who is sitting in the room is keeping track quantitatively of the number of times Dan uses the word we versus the number of times he uses the word I. And the whole deal is if you're not willing to be part of a team medicine practice, which to me relative to a piece of your question is a, is a surrogate at some extent for, uh, uh, for listening, uh, you're not you're not you're not allowed to play the game. There's a there's a woman doc who came you know with incredible credentials from a different place, and talk talk about a power statement. Even if by definition it's kind of not precisely mathematically accurate, she said when I came to Mayo and remember she was top of her heap before she got there, she said I became 100 times better at practicing medicine because I was part of an organism as opposed to a whatever, whatever it might be. So it sure as heck starts at the, in, in the hiring, uh, in the, in the hiring practices. Uh, and I'm not going to say it's too late afterwards. I mean, another thing that I'm totally compelled by is I bet you that in the average corporation, 25 people or 25,000 you will not find in the training department a formal course on listening. Totally and I right. strongly believe you can get better at it. Uh, needless to say, obviously, and, and this is one of the great difficulties, is that, uh, uh, you know, as we, as we always say, it's got to be modeled by the leadership. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm doing an awful lot of health, in healthcare at the minute, and this sticks in my mind on the listening thing. There's a guy by the name of Jerome Groupman, who's a uh, Harvard MD, who wrote a book called How Doctors Think. Mm-hmm. And he said the best best source of information, Tracy, on whatever your ailment happens to be is you. Uh, you know, you'll talk to me as a doctor for 15 minutes, and most of what you say will be gibberish but you will give off 25 clues in the process which are solid gold then referring to hard-nosed behavioral research dr groupman says what does the research tell us quantitatively in terms of how long into the conversation does the average doc go until he interrupts and the answer happens to be 18 seconds and, you know, I think the same thing is true for managers. So I think we can hire for it. I think we can train for it. Uh, you know, there are an awful lot of people who have shingles out called, uh, you know, executive coaches. Some are good, some mm-hmm. are bad, some are indifferent. I think the great ones uh, can be part of that process as well. But just like, you know, we said long, long ago, as Dan mentioned, soft is hard, hard is soft. You've, you've, you've got to believe in your gut that this will this will make an enormous difference. I, I happen to think effective listening per se is probably the single most significant basis for differentiation uh, that any organization, profit, nonprofit, uh, church, fire department, or, uh, or Silicon Valley company can have. And yet we don't teach it. Tracy, I, let me offer, let me chime in here and offer two very small tactical things. One of the things that I've discovered, because the question was, the question you, Tracy asked about, how do you listen to people who disagree with you? And, and one of the things that I've discovered, and it's been very helpful to me, is when you're dealing with anybody, uh, particularly people who you might disagree with, is to assume positive intent until, dis- until proven otherwise. A lot of times when people disagree with us, we assume that there's something nefarious and dastardly 
on, on their part, when in fact they just might disagree with us. And so if you, if you just assume that they have the same positive intent that you have, uh, you can often have a more productive conversation. The other thing is I find it useful when I disagree with people to repeat what, th what their point of view back because it helps me understand it a little bit better and it helps isolate what the, what the difference would be. But I'm totally with Tom. We teach so many things, but we never teach listening. And a lot of people, uh, especially people with a Y chromosome, believe that uh, the, opposite, the opposite of listening is waiting. And I mean, the opposite of talking is waiting. And so um, uh, let's go. Thank you for effectively I, I, listening. I, yeah, Dan, I really love your, your final point on that in terms of, uh, in terms of the repeating the question. I, I think it's, you know, you know, somebody who's been on top of this for a long time, incidentally, it, it's all over Stephen Covey's books. Uh, sure, sure. And that's, I mean, that's one of his principles is seek first to understand. Yeah. And there is something there is something about that. I also think that there's there's something to be said in terms of velocity. That a lot of times we move so quickly that we don't stop and say, okay, what is this person really trying to tell me? And the other thing is, I really think that effective that a lot of times disagreements are less pronounced. That the gulf is not nearly as deep as we think it is. And if you actually say, hey, this person has positive intent, let me understand what what they're saying. Oftentimes, you find that the gulf isn't nearly as unbridgeable as it might seem. So let's take another. Thank you, Tracy, for the great question. Yeah, it's let's great. Take another it's question. fabulous, Tracy. Uh, let's go. Uh, let's go uh, north of the U.S. border to Toronto. Uh, your number ends in three five. Toronto, you're on the air. Toronto, can you hear us? Yes. Can you can you hear me? Yeah, I sure can. Okay. Uh, I'm very interested in Tom Peters, but one of the things I'd be a little controversial and say that in his search, the book in In Search of Excellence was not valid research because he never gave any comparators of things like the build of excellence. So I just wonder what Tom's comment went on that. Uh, I okay. admire the book and all that, and it was a great book, but I don't think it was valid research. What do you think? Okay. So, so Tom, uh, now there's somebody who might disagree with you, so do you want to repeat the point back? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's 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 not a new suggestion, and I take it very seriously. The the you know the the question is, is in search of excellence valid research? Uh, the answer is, by an awful lot of definitions, I would be the first to agree that it isn't. Uh, there is such a thing, and there's there's a magazine in, or sorry, a, a journal in the organizational behavior world called Administrative Science Quarterly that's as technical as it comes, and somebody who I didn't know wrote an entire article defending Bob Waterman and I, and they said this is what you call exploratory research, where you just dig your hands into the middle of the problem and attempt to define things. I don't, you know, one, one, one thing I'd certainly say is we didn't sell it as that kind of research. We never said in any sense, we, you know, what, what we did is, is Americans were getting hammered by the Japanese, and the theory was that all American companies were pitiful companies uh, employing pitiful people. And so Bob and I went around to McKinsey Partners, people we knew in the business world, academics, and said, is anybody doing anything right? And they gave us a bunch of nominations, and then we did a little analytics to make sure these are companies that actually made money, and we teased some principles out of them. And is that valid research? Uh, the answer is, by a lot of definitions, no. Incidentally, I guess that I mean, is I one thing. Of course it is. I mean, it depends on what you mean by it depends. No, on no, what I mean, what I mean, is, I mean, I, I mean, you're yeah, not, you're not, you're not, you're not telling people to take some kind of drug for the, an ailment, and and you haven't explored the side effects. You're saying, hey, here are some places that are flourishing. We're going to dig deep in how these how these operations work, and from that, we're going to glean some principles that might be useful to you. I mean, yeah, to me, all, it's all like, I say is I'm not yeah. trying to defend myself by the standard yeah. of of uh, CERN in uh, and and high end physics. Incidentally, you bring up a wonderful point. Dan, as part of the response to this, Stanford has a new department that is focused on this thing in healthcare that's called evidence-based medicine. The right. guy who heads the department has got as good credentials as anybody else, and he started a rather famous article by saying 50% of the results in published medical research are simply false. 
And so no matter where you go, you know, there yeah. there are enormous difficulties. Well, I mean, this is a big I research. Is, yeah, but I you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to say we were doing nuclear physics. Yeah, and this is a big issue in academic this is a big issue in academic research now uh because of the difficulty of replicating certain kinds of of findings. Uh and uh, and even the nature of academic uh, the nature of academic research is you want to, for your own career, you want to, you want a, a really stark, interesting finding. And a lot of times, if you one runs an experiment and doesn't get that finding, then that particular study goes in the file drawer, and nobody out there necessarily hears about it. Meanwhile, yeah, my, there my are. My wife has a great friend from at Johns Hopkins who was the leader of the pack. I don't know if this was was uh, actually congressional legislation or whether it was uh, executive order, but. It's moving in the direction of requiring the pharmaceutical companies to report on all of their trials right. rather than the last two out of right. 108 that happen to work. Right, and that, that, right, that's pharma. But even in, even in the world of social psychology, that is, um, their, uh, experimenter A will get this finding. And then on the rare occasions when experimenter B will try to replicate it, and believe me, there's no career juice in replicating experiments, right. uh, so nobody wants to do it. You know they won't get that finding, and so I mean I think all of it calls for a certain amount of humility in any kind of finding we have to, to sort of to, to announce that you have, however you found it, the last word is sort of idiotic. But the idea that you have a word that can contribute to the conversation seems completely uh, plausible and justifiable. Oh, Let's yeah. go. No, I mean you know all, all we ever said was we think these are some useful yeah. ideas and the useful ideas seem to work under certain circumstances for some people. So what sure. the hell? Why not give it a try? Absolutely. Let's and, go to San Francisco. And the language no, was that we talked. Sorry. We're going to go to San Francisco for our next call. I want to make sure we get more voices in here. Uh, San Francisco, uh, you're welcome to Office Hours with Tom Peters. Uh, tell us who we're talking to. San Francisco, are you there? I'm in San Francisco, but I'm not sure if that, you're referring to me. <laughs> that's you. I am. I am. That's why you're on. Yay, Tell me your perfect, first. perfect. It's Deborah, and my question really is related to the title of this, uh, where Tom was going to talk about the mother of all presentations. That was very intriguing to me. <laughs> tell us about. Tell us about that, Tom. Tom put up the mother of all presentations. Tell us about that. Uh, well, it was a indulgence that. Took me three years. I I do PowerPoint presentations, and I have now given on this topic since 1977, somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 speeches. And my metier is slides, not text. And I decided that I would try to kind of put down everything I knew in a format that I'm used to. And so I I ended up designing what was about a 22-part 20, presentation, and it has ended up at this point with 4,096 slides. Uh, probably 2,500 of them are standard slides you would recognize, and 1,500 of them are explanatory text. We didn't use the notes feature because nobody reads the bloody notes, and we wanted mm -hmm. to force it on people. Uh, it adds up to probably 150 or 200,000 words, and we are releasing the 22 parts one at a time every two weeks, no charge, no requirement, no nothing, and uh, it's just kind of everything I know uh you know in in a way and the expectation is obviously not that anybody would read 4000 slides but it's it's a little bit of the answer i just gave a minute minute ago and that is i call it some stuff and i was getting teased by my colleagues about it so so i came up with this moap or mother of all presentations and uh yeah it's just it's material that's out there and it's my goal stuff. and you know you know stuff. Dan's doing it right now with with this uh program he's done a dozen times and my Dan cares about what he does I care about what I do this started with in search of excellence my number one goal in life is to give it away and hope that per the prior guy's question somebody somewhere will find some one thing 
that's worth playing with. I mean, Dan just gave us one. Repeat the question. That, to me, that kind of trivial little thing is the least trivial thing in the world. And if you pick that up from Dan today and you pick something up off of slide 2,311, <laughs> I will be the happiest human being in the world. And you can find those listeners at uh, www.excellencenow. You can find all 4,000 slides, however many there are, at www.excellencenow.com. And, and, and isn't it amazing, Dan, that we got found for free, or whatever, 10 bucks, excellencenow.com. I was shocked out of my mind. Uh, fantastic. Now, among the um, slide sets is one called, uh, I happen to like this one, called You Are Your Calendar. Give us the big idea in that, that you are your calendar. Well, the, the the big idea is the old idea that that uh, you know it's, it's hard to make it sexy. The only thing that we have is our time, uh, and there's a wonderful Gandhi line that probably half the people who are who are listening in have have uh, used, and and it is uh, you must be the change you wish to see in the world. And so, my comment is the only asset I have is my time. And my time is the only thing that will demonstrate what I care about. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. You can say this is the year that we're going to do, uh, you know, wild focus on quality. And I'm going to look at Daniel Pink's calendar. Daniel Pink, who is executive vice president of one-fourth of the company, and I'm going to put a microscope on his calendar, and I'm going to discover that given his job, he's busier than the Dickens Problems of all kinds land on his desk every day. He's not an idiot. He responds to them, but at the end of 30 days, he has spent all of yep. four hours and 11 minutes on quality. So my very rude response is, uh, Mr. Pink, you don't care any more about quality than you know the the uh, the, the mosquito that bit me last night. Your mm. calendar tells all. Your calendar is the only thing that doesn't lie. You're as good as the time spent. Period. Uh, it's uh, it's it's great. It's a great lesson. The other one that I, another one that I really like are the um, um, for interesting for a guy who who is known for big ideas. I think that the word small comes out in a lot of your stuff, uh, whether it's small wins or small courtesies. Tell us about why the importance of tucking in the shower curtain in the bathtub. <laughs> I I start all my presentations with that. Um, the uh, the 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 great hotelier Conrad Hilton was was at the end of his career was you know they had some gala celebrating his life and after the usual speakers they called him to the podium and the master of ceremony said you know Mr Hilton will you share your lessons learned uh, plural lessons and Hilton gets up in front of the crowd very stately looking guy and addresses them and looks out at them and says remember to tuck the shower curtain into the bathtub and with that he walks off the stage and my basic one line explanatory of that dan is that location 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 gets you into the hotel the first time but the tucked in shower curtain gets you back for the next 42 and as all of our private sector people who are listening in know you don't make money on the first transaction anyway. You make the right. money on number two through 42. And so, you know, I, I just think it's the most powerful darn thing in the world. Incidentally, uh, you were kind enough a minute ago to say that I'm known for big ideas. My first published article was was uh, in, uh, in a magazine called Organizational Dynamics, and it was called Symbols, Patterns, and Settings based on the shockingly trivial ideas in my Ph.D. dissertation at Stanford, but it was all about way back then, uh, you know, the, the uh, you, you are what your calendar says you are. And, you know, things that we now know behaviorally, like literally if you, if you have a meeting at a round table instead of a, a, a rectangular table, that 40% more people will chime in with questions, and and I just, mm -hmm. and I, I just, I mean that's that's my oh, oh I've got to say by the way I don't I don't yeah. I don't want to ever cheat on these kinds of things, on the calendar thing the guy who made it famous was a uh, Canadian researcher by the name of Henry Mintzberg, oh, sure. he had a famous article in the Harvard Business Review and it was 
how executives spend their time, and it was a bombshell. He said that the average duration of an executive contact is nine minutes. It's not, you know, it's kind of that silly model where the executive sits at his desk and spends an hour and a half planning the future. And what he found was that life is madness, which in retrospect is not exactly the most surprising thing in the world, but uh, Henry Henry was the first guy to nail it. Uh, life is madness. Let's take one more call from uh, Chicago. Chicago, uh, you're on the air. Chicago, can you hear us? Hello? Yeah, tell us your first name. Hey, this is Steve Dalka from Chicago. I wanted, hey, to ask Tom, I wanted to ask Tom about his favorite all-time project and what people can learn from that. Great question, Steve. Thanks. Um, well, I sent Dan something uh, as, as uh, you know, prep for what I'm thinking about right now. That was called, uh, you know, get, getting things that matter done. And my all-time favorite project, which is the least interesting response you'd ever imagine, was the work that started in 1977 at McKinsey. And the new managing director, a guy by the name of Ron Daniel, and I've acted like all the rest of the McKinsey guys are schmucks, which is not true. <laughs> Daniel said, uh, you know, Daniel said, we invent a lot of good strategies and then people can't implement them. You, Tom, are, uh, I wasn't young because I'd had the White House thing and the Navy thing. He said, you, Tom, just finished your Ph.D. on this topic at Stanford. How about running around the world and, and looking at what academics and business people are thinking about on the execution side, on the uh, shower curtain side, if you will? And so that was 1977, and five years later, having been fired by McKinsey in 81, In Search of Excellence came out. But that, uh, that, that five-year, you know, it's not a five-year project anymore. If you go to 1977, it's now a 35-year project, and it literally is one project. And, uh, you know, it was intellectual material that I was excited about as the Dickens in 77. And this, and and, this was the birth of, of, the, of, of, of the 7S. Seven S's. Yeah, seven, the, the so-called 7S model of McKinsey's got, got invented. And the, the whole idea was, I mean, I, I, again, you know, we don't have the time, Dan, for, for a lot of contextual stuff, but the rule of thumb was organization effectiveness is about the literal technical charts and boxes diagram. And we said, no, it isn't. It's about how people spend their time. It's about yep. whether the table is square or round. And, you know, you, you, you've just finished, not finished, you've spent the last 15 years of your life on precisely these, you know, these same topics. And uh, as you and I both know, the, you know, the, the, the idea of big ideas is highly overrated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you come um, up with a so, book title, and there's an important, coherent thingy. Sure. But sure. the reality is, 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 is what makes it work is, you know, those, those shoulders you stand on, and then your yep. own interpretation and new data. And if you read the Tom's uh, writing on the McKinsey 7S uh, approach, you'll also discover that alliteration is helpful too. If yeah, which is not six Tom S's, Peters. Six we had, we had a guy by the name of Tony Athos yeah. working for us, and he taught us about alliteration. And my God, was he right? Martin Luther King Jr. had a pretty good, uh, pretty good success with it as well. All right, so, Tom. We're at the end of the hour. Why don't you give our listeners one, uh, give us one more piece of advice as we go as we go along here, as before we, we we send everyone on their way. What's one piece of advice? One thing we should be thinking about? One thing we should be doing to improve our own? performance and maybe even to make the world a little better the average person cares and all they are waiting for and dan you are the master of this and what you've written all they're waiting for is a little bit of acknowledgement of their worth and then they will move heaven and earth for you i i've fallen in love with this word acknowledgement it's not mm. Not appreciation it's not positive reinforcement it's yep. literally acknowledgement that I exist, and yep. the truth of the matter is that an awful lot of people don't get it an awful lot of the time, particularly from quote-unquote busy bosses who are overwhelmed with work. And the other, the other point is, which I hate to say this, sounds like a negative in a way, remember 
you're not Steve Jobs. Uh, he can he was able to get away with murder behaviorally because he literally was one one of a kind. Yeah. And yeah. for the rest of us who are mortal, uh, but behaving well is the uh, is the, is the number one secret of success. Even if you're an engineer with an IQ of a thousand. Acknowledge people, behave well, uh, as your mother taught you, have good manners. It's all great advice. Uh, that's it for uh, another quick hour of Office Hours. Thanks for being with us. This program will be available for download for free in a few days at danpink.com. To learn more about Tom, go to tompeters.com. Uh, you can get his mother of all presentations at www.excellencenow.com. And, of course, you can be among the tens of thousands of people who follow him on Twitter at, at Tom underscore Peters, at Tom underscore Peters. Uh, and join us uh, next month when Duke behavioral economist Dan Ariely will be talking about his new book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. Uh, until then, Tom Peters, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank, thanks, Dan, and I'm going to be listening into the next one because oh, I, lo I, I love that other Dan as well as you. All righty. Until then, uh, for producer Tim Grawl in Lynchburg, Virginia, director Jessica Lerner here at World Headquarters, uh, I, and I want to remind myself of this, I am not Steve Jobs. I am Dan Pink. This is Office Hours. If you've missed an episode, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, but you can listen to previous episodes on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for taking an hour for Office Hours.